I would like to talk about what a mod is, Mike. Okay. Because we did re- we did refer to mods a fair bit in the last episode, and I thought just backtrack a little bit and talk about exactly what they are, what kind of history they've had. And Federico, of course, touched on fan-made games, which are kind of a mod. Uh, but let's let's go back in time, as I'm fond of doing, and look at the history of these things and, and see if we can shake the tree a little bit and see why they're so successful and why people love doing them. And, and later on, perhaps get a little bit of feedback from our listeners and some developers about what they thought good mods were. How does that sound? Sounds great to me. Okay, so I guess this is obvious, but a mod, you know, some people might not know. Mod basically is short for modification, and that's really all it is. If you just change a game in any way, or add to it, or subtract, or even subtract from it, that's effectively a, a mod. I look at mods as a remix. People love remixing. We live in a remix culture. It's not just music. It happens in video. You could call it a mashup as well, you know, because people do that as well. They take elements from one place and uh, and then from another place and merge influences to create a completely new take and feel on a video game. So anytime you change a game and you're not the developer, that's the key thing, not the original developer of the original game, that's a mod. Obviously, if... Uh, the original developer did it. It would be an update, a patch, a sequel, DLC, that kind of thing. But if you're not the original developer, we tend to call that a mod. Now, in the early days, really early days, we're talking about late 70s, early 80s, even all the way up to the mid 80s. It would be programmers mainly who would do this kind of thing. What we do is we would actually disassemble the code of an entire game. And that is, look at the instructions. And then we would reverse engineer the data. And of course, people are great at this today. In those days, the tools were awful. So it would have to be done in a very laborious way. But the reason we would do that is once we understood the data structures, once we understood the code, you could do things like modify the graphics. You could modify the level design. You could fix bugs, you know. You could find one one piece of data that was in the wrong place, and remove it. In fact, the version of Jet Set Willy I did for the Commodore 64, just like the original Spectrum version, had a bug where it was impossible to complete the game. Oh, the days before QA. And... (laughs) (laughs) Great. As far as bugs go, it's a pretty pretty big one. It's a pretty big one. And uh, what happened was I had to find what they call a poke. And a poke was something that you typed in basic at uh, the command line because every computer back then had basic. So as soon as you turn a computer on, you were straight into basic. And what you do is you'd load the game up from the cassette, you would interrupt it, you know, you you press some kind of break sequence, and then you would manually type in a poke. And what a poke does is it takes a value and puts it into a location. So you'd need to work out where in memory the bad value was, and you'd put the correct value in by typing in a poke or a series of pokes. Now, the interesting thing is it didn't stop with fixing bugs. People would do things like find out what a poke was to give you infinite lives. So they'd find the code that checked for whether your lives were zero or not and end the game. And they just stick maybe 99 in there or or remove that code altogether so that you never lost your lives and you could carry on and and finish a game. So that was quite cool. But the, the main thing 
uh, the main reason people um, modified stuff was not to create a complete remix because it would have been difficult because of copyright law to distribute the game, but really just to ma mainly fix bugs, but also to change the behavior. And then eventually you had the demo scene spring out of that. And it became really quite a thing on the Commodore 64 because it had pretty amazing hardware. And then it grew to a ridiculous level with the Amiga where people did absolutely incredible things by stripping out code, um, from from games and adding their own flashy title screens. And what happened was that this would be uh, the beginnings of a really vibrant, I don't know if I should use the word vibrant, piracy scene where pirates would stick these uh, cracked games out onto the market, yep. uh, the black market, having put their fancy demos on the front of existing games. And so when I'm looking for old copies of my games, uh, when I find them, I tend to find some cracker has cracked them and, you know, put their stuff at the front. And actually, I think that's quite cool now. It's not like I'm getting any money for that stuff and neither are the uh, creators of the other originals. Huh. In fact, my very first game, Mike, was a fan game. <laughs> um, I, and, and the way I did that was there was a listing in a magazine. I typed it in. It was in basic. And then I started to modify the listing. And I stuck it out um, in 1982. And of course, as everyone knows by now, uh, I put a classified ad on the back of Popular Computing Weekly and sold zero copies. Um, that, so yeah, that was great. Uh, um, but then I learned Assembler and everything kind of worked out. But moving on, this became a lot more formalized in the mid 80s. Uh, there was, I don't know if our listeners are as old as I am, but there was this thing called the Advent Adventure Construction Kit. It was actually published by EA and it was huge, absolutely huge. And it literally let you make adventures. Now, I wouldn't necessarily call that a mod, but it was the first time you could redistribute a game created by a game creation uh, package that would become the precursor to a mod because you were distributing the Adventure Construction Kit engine every time you did this and you had some samples with which you could do that. And it was the first time you could start sharing stuff. So that's what it was a good signal for, that eventually you would be able to modify games and you would be able to share them. And the way you did it with ACK was with floppy disks. At that point, you could really only do it with your friends, but of course later we had the internet and that's when things became enormous so i would say when you had developers like id valve and then bethesda coming onto the scene that's when mods became absolutely enormous the pc scene was where mods found their natural home because it was really uh easy to distribute pc stuff there was a really vibrant shareware scene and i I use Vibrant in a much more positive sense than I used it for piracy yeah, earlier. Yeah. <laughs> it was certainly busy. <laughs> Maybe the piracy word should be rampant, and then this rampant, one is Vibrant. Yes, <laughs> rampant piracy. Yeah, this, that's beautiful. Let's go with that. Rampant piracy. Rampant, such a good word, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about rampant for the whole show now. Uh, but yeah, so when ID, Valve and Bethesda were rampant with great games, um, what happened was they created a file system that packaged up levels, characters, um, graphics, and other metadata around the game. 
And people were able to reverse engineer the format of those and create mods. So, for example, with ID, you had a file called a WAD file, spelt W-A-D. It's not an acronym, believe it or not. Um, not as far as I'm aware, anyway. But that's how they packaged up all of their data. And uh, some of these companies provided editors for their stuff. So you, the, the likes of Splash Damage actually started by uh, creating mods. That's how, that's how their entire company began. They were very famous for creating mods, and then they had, of course, um, quite a successful um, career as a developer in their own right. Uh, and more kind of anoraki stuff, I guess. Um, there were things like PIG files and HOG files, you know, pig and hog. Uh, I think that was LucasArts, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but not bad. You can come up with a good... I don't think that was an acronym either. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to modify my hog file, my pig <laughs> file. Nice. Um, we'll have to think of more ones like that. Cow. You could have a cow file, couldn't you? Why not? If you've got uh, pig and hog. Yeah. We'll stop exactly. Them. Yeah. Hen. Hen file. Get all the farm animals in there. And then you got um, map files, and then you had pack files. That was very famous. Quake had pack files. So basically, you had this culture of people modifying these files using game editors, and sometimes they would build their own editors and uh, create amazing, amazing modifications. And then the internet came. Suddenly, you have an ecosystem. That's when things really exploded. Jared, why do you think people do this? You know when you're learning a musical instrument? I don't know if mm -hmm. you've uh, learned a musical instrument or tried to teach yourself a musical instrument, but yeah. I've, I've done it a few times. What, what do you like? Well, I have tried to learn bass guitar in my life. It was unsuccessful. It was unsuccessful. It was very unsuccessful, but I did try. I could help you with that. Mm. <laughs> I could, I could. I, could I know, I know how good you are, which is why I was reluctant to tell you. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Honestly, I, I love this kind of stuff. Happy to help you. But I don't think our listeners care about um, my skills or your skills in the bass guitar. But what they no. might be interested in is that when I started, the first thing I did was I wanted to copy other tunes. Mm -hmm. And then my first, when I started to write songs, my first compositions were, I, th I think my first song I wrote when I was about 14. And it was, um, it was a, Let's let's try and think of this, a polite word. No, no, there's no polite word. It was a rip-off of a police song. And that's how I started, because this is how we, how we learn language. We imitate. And then once we've done some imitation, we branch out a little bit. We say it's our own, but actually it's based on an imitation. And, of course, influence works the same way. So if you have a band like Oasis, you can clearly hear the influence of the Beatles. You could almost call that a mod of anything they've done, a mod of a Beatles song. So you think that like people start to do these mods, and we'll talk about some of the really big mods in a bit, but like you think that people start to do these and then it ends up spiraling up into their own games, but they begin as a way to learn. I think so. It's it's okay. fun, you know? It's really yeah. cool. It's really fun. You know, if you if not everyone who listens to music wants to become a musician. And that's cool. Not everyone who plays video games wants to become a game developer. But some dabble. And when they dabble, the way they start is with mods because first they have to understand what's going on. That's a beauty. You know, um Gabe Newell of Valve 
has often said that, you know, forget about interviews. I'm paraphrasing here and maybe I'm, uh, I hope he offers me license to interpret his words this way. But, you know, forget about interviews that the main criteria should be, can you make a game um, using a mod? You know, can you create a mod, basically? Because to to do that effectively, first, you have to understand. You have to know exactly how the original game works. And then you have to create something that can stand on the shoulders of that and still be good. Now, the work has been done for you. You know, the, the game's logic is there. The game's systems are there. But you can have enormous license once you understand how the underpinnings work, once you understand how the file systems work, once you understand how all of the various assets tie together to create a video game. You get a really uh, excellent education in the design of a video game by creating a mod. And it's the same with music. You know, you deconstruct a song, you understand chord progressions, yeah? You learn to listen to uh, the the bass tone mm -hmm. to create a bass line you know you're listening to a chord progression you're okay he's not quite playing the right chord that the maybe the bass is playing something else exactly the same with bass and eventually some music some musicians not all musicians will become composers and when they compose it's like modding your first uh, compositions are going to be blatant ripoffs of stuff that you know and then you're going to branch off of that if you're really good suddenly you're going to have built a lot of experience and you're going to create great work of your own. So I think it's a really excellent path. Start off with mods, because then you get the grounding in the design and structure of a video game, and then go into creating a video game yourself. That makes sense. Should we talk about Half-Life? I think we should. Because um, if Half-Life 3 ever happens, it's probably going to be a mod, right? And it'll be pulled uh, in one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the the thing I I really love about Half Life um, is that it's probably been the most widely used. Not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure the most widely used basis for modding. And it spawned for me what was probably the best known mod of all, which is Counter Strike. I, I have a friend who's... Um, can I give my friend a shout-out? Yes. Hello, David. Um, David's played Counter-Strike for about 25,000 years, and he's frighteningly good at it. It's interesting because there were a whole bunch of other games that came out after that, you know, team-based shooters. And he didn't switch. He played Counter-Strike, and he carried on playing it because he developed friendships on there, and he developed a skill, uh, a skill level on there that's pretty frightening um but it wasn't the only one there were tons of games that um that came out of half-life um and then of course there was a, a direct mod of half-life itself uh a game that david also likes called black mesa i'm not sure if the americans pronounce it mesa or not they probably do they pronounce do. it mesa yeah, yeah they call it mesa god love them so um black mesa um is basically half-life uh, I don't think they sorted the ending out, but it didn't matter. It was just a better-looking version and used the updated Source engine. Another engine that's been an absolutely amazing source of inspiration has been the Quake engine um, by ID. I mean, they, they actually released the source code for the entire engine. Um, John uh, Carmack did anyway. Uh, and then it's uh, sequels. But Team Fortress, which was probably uh, one of the definitive mods came from the Quake engine. 
And of course, you know, what happens is that when someone creates an amazing mod, when a developer creates an amazing mod, sometimes they get noticed. And Valve are really good at doing that. You know, Gabe Newell doesn't just say, oh, you should make a mod and that's what will bring you um, success. Uh, that's what will be the best way for you to get into a company. He, he actually uh, lives by those words and hires people who worked with uh, their games or any other game, in fact, like uh, World of Warcraft. I think World of Warcraft was the basis of Dota, but it was one of the most successful MOBAs around. Uh, in fact, it might have been the original MOBA. I'm not sure anybody used the term MOBA um, before Dota. Uh, that team originally made Defense of the Ancients, and that was a mod for, yeah, it was a mod for Warcraft. Um, Valve then bought the IP for Dota, and then they commissioned exactly the same developers uh, to go off and make Dota 2, which was one of the most successful games ever. So here we have a situation in which a mod maker has effectively invented a genre, which is staggering. And then what happens, this I find really uh, amazing. In fact, it reminds me of uh, the, the process of biological evolution. Once they start off with, uh, with a mod, they become so good, they understand things so well that they're able to get rid of the basis for the mod and come up with their own engine because it suits what they're going for even more. So the original basis for the mod has served its purpose. It got them to where they are, and now they're free to discard it and build their own underpinnings. This has happened a few times where games that are, that are out there start off as mods for an existing game and eventually become so successful that they become a game in their own right, not needing the original technology because now they use their own. I just think that's amazing. That is evolution is a great way to put it, right? That, that they they need the knowledge, they need the base from somewhere else, so they can issues as we were saying earlier, so you can learn. But then eventually you outgrow that, right? Like you, you've taken the base information that you need, and now you see how you would do it in your own image. I think that that's the way. I mean, just talking through these things, it perfectly. It's they're perfect examples for the reason that you gave, right? Like that that people need a base and then they grow and then they learn and then they imitate and then they create. And that is no more apparent than in Dota and in Counter-Strike, right? These are now games that are completely devoid of any of the underpinnings from the original games that they were modding from. But they totally. only could have come from this... Like people had these ideas but didn't have the knowledge to build the whole thing. And so they made these mods, which are great for, you know, in, in a lot of instances, and in some instances, if, if adopted and accepted, can be great for the original game, right? Because people buy copies of the original games and then add mods to them in some cases. Um, and then they're great for the overall community as these companies continue to grow and, and stretch out. I mean, like, you know, you use Valve, right? Well, Valve just went ahead and buys them up. Right, so it's like we're all good here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, totally brilliant for the for the ecosystem of video game development. Mm -hmm. Very, very healthy. No, you totally nailed it. Uh, you know that whole biological evolution thing. I think is a is a pretty reasonable metaphor to use in this case because it's it's weird. You know, you have this independent entity, but it couldn't have existed without mutating an existing entity. Mm -hmm. You know. So that's all great. You know, PCs, 
really wonderful for for mods. But what about consoles? Have they really embraced the concept of mods? I don't think they have. It's very hard for them to do that because they live to still, I would say to a large extent, in a world where video games were packaged goods. And packaged goods don't tend to be changed, even though they're now all offering digital distribution and uh, digital updates and digital downloads and so on. They have different definitions. So they have DLCs, but DLCs are not created by other people. Yeah, It's the, the inherent openness of the PC allows for this. The inherent closed nature of the console ecosystem doesn't allow for this, right? Th- that's it. Totally nailed it. Because the mods that we see on consoles, like I just downloaded a mod for Minecraft today on my Switch for an Adventure Time pack. That's not really a mod, right? Like that came from Mojang. Like yeah. they call them mods in Minecraft. I mean, I know that there yeah, are yeah, mods, yeah. but they call like a lot of skin packs and stuff. People refer to them as mods, but they're not really in this in the way that we're talking about them here. No, I mean it might be okay to refer to them as a remix by the original artist mm-hmm. uh, but but not by a new artist and certainly not you wouldn't call it a cover version yeah it's like a, yeah you say it's like a remix a remaster <laughs> <laughs> ding well you know the the console um manufacturers the platforms didn't ignore mods they saw the success and wanted to embrace it in a cautious form and the way PlayStation did it was with something they dubbed, or it might have been Media Molecule who dubbed it. I don't know. I think it's probably PlayStation. User-generated content, or UGC. If it hadn't been for user-generated content, also known as mods, let's face it, um, I don't think Little Big Planet would have been as successful as it was. I mean, the whole tagline was play, create, share. And the whole concept of allowing players to make their own levels and then play them albeit in a very rigid ecosystem you know within the little big planet universe you call it a universe it's not a universe let's face it you know that the whole of gaming is the universe let's say and this is just a very small corner of it but the the point being that they did facilitate it but with very tight restrictions and that whole concept was built into the heart of the game the 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 kind of blessed and created single player mode campaign if you you know try and give it a word that we see in other places of little big planet is boring like i found that quite boring personally like it was fun when you're kind of going through the tutorial but just playing through like a a platformer with interesting and weird physics like i'd seen that a million times but it was the user generated content of that game that made it just so freaking cool right the people would like how they do in minecraft right like create these working calculators and all that sort of stuff like that's what really made little big planet incredible and that was what it was right like i think media molecule was setting out to actually make all of that but they have to give you a game right like they can't uh, and i get that right you're selling a game you're going to give people a game but the real fun the real excitement was in what people were making for it which was obviously all blessed yeah, totally. I mean, blessed to some degree in that it was moderated. Yeah. And allowed um, and encouraged and the yeah, tools were yeah, given. Yeah. Like the tools are in yeah. the game. You didn't have to exactly, like, yeah. hack the game to get at the engine. No, there, there would have been no way to be able to do that anyway because the PS3 was really locked down. But yeah, I mean, give them the tools and let them go to town. 
of course they they did have to have moderation teams and make sure that uh, those players who were creating levels that resembled genitalia were very quickly removed. Mm-hmm. Um, there were quite a few of those, apparently. There always is. <laughs> there always, yes. First thing anyone's going to do, I guess. Well, not anyone, but some people. But yeah, now, and now there are over, I say now, uh, by the end, I think there were over 8 million levels for the PS3 version. That's wow. a lot. <laughs> but let's let's leave the consoles and their very closed ecosystems as far as mods are concerned aside and look at some really phenomenal successes and it's very hard to talk about mods without talking about daisy i think it has to be pronounced like that i don't think there's an alternative sadly but that was a mod for armor 2 Armour 2 was a really old game. It was Never a, even heard of that game. <laughs> yeah, it was a ropey old war game, you know, and ugly as sin. Um, I hope the developers don't mind me saying that. Uh, but, I mean, ugly as sin by the time it was used as the basis for DayZ. In its time, you know, it was absolutely fine. But as a result of DayZ being a mod for Armour 2 and therefore re- uh, requiring the original game, because of that, Armour 2 then went on to sell hundreds of thousands more copies, even though it was quite a few years old by the time DayZ came out. DayZ was an absolute monster hit. Uh, I remember before the launch of PS4, we were entertaining the possibility of creating something that would uh, allow modding um, based on a persistent universe of some kind. Uh, didn't quite come to fruition. It was logistically too difficult. And in terms of the security requirements at PlayStation, very, very hard to to get that going for launch. As I say, I think that's a philosophical point, and it's always going to be very hard. But another absolutely ginormous, ginormous mod is, of course, Gary's mod. I think uh, Gary Newman, uh, also the name of one of my favourite artists of all time uh gary newman of uh, gary's mod fame uh i think it was 22 when he made gary's mod and it was just sandbox i don't think there was any game to start off with but the amount of mods made for it and the depth that is now possible within that is astounding now that game never mind eight million levels for little big planet gary's mod sold 10 million copies plus and that's, I think, I'm pretty sure that's an old figure. But in doing so, it, I think I'm right in saying this, is the most successful Steam indie game of all time. And by extension, quite possibly, if you exclude free-to-play on iOS, the biggest indie game of all time. That is a lot of units and probably a lot of moolah as well. It's very bold. It's very different. Sandbox has now become a really uh, pivotal genre in its own right i don't think it was invented there but it i think it was raised to a new level became an art form with gary's mod um i think to to some extent i would argue that it's a toss-up between gary's mod and minecraft um which was the basis for some truly staggering complexity in mods and Minecraft probably wins that battle. I don't know if you remember, somebody made uh, a working computer 
in Minecraft at some point. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. which is just nuts. There is a there is a playable version of Pokemon inside of Minecraft. It's just incredibly slow. Like there's everything. Wow. And yeah, and so how could we conclude our discussion on modding without talking about Minecraft? Because it's probably got the largest modding community in the world. I mean that this is this is nuts. When I was looking into this, I found there was a website that shows parents how to install mods for their kids because it was driven by kids, this game. Kids absolutely love it. They'll play this thing hours and hours and hours. Eat to this day, they'll play for hours and hours and hours and the parents just don't get it. Of course, there are some adults who get it. Gamers get it and so on. But, you know, parents who are never really gamers and their kids are playing this thing, it's become an utter phenomenon and yep. has been now for many, many years. And I would, I would imagine that without mods it would have been very difficult for it to achieve quite the level of success it did. It would have always been extremely successful, but it just became a phenomenon. Because what happens is that the life of the game is extended massively. And it's still Minecraft. It's not like people are taking mods and going, you know, this is now a completely different game. I'm creating a fork of Minecraft. They're not doing that. It's still Minecraft, but with this mod. Minecraft, but with that mod. Make sense? Yeah. It's a subtle distinction, but I think it's it's worth making. And now, I mean, it's become such a phenomenon. Of course, Microsoft uh, bought Mojang in in an epic deal, mm-hmm. which showed us just how important mods, mods were. But they've actually created a Minecraft mod developer pack for Visual Studio, which is nuts. So, you know... When you're using Visual Studio as a developer, you're used to seeing C++ and perhaps C Sharp and some of these other powerful languages. But there is a... (laughs) It's just nuts. A mod developers pack. Yeah, it's become totally serious now. I thought I'd ask our listeners. um, I think you and Federico did the same. Mm -hmm. And we we got quite a few responses. And I just wanted to pick out a few, if you don't mind. I would love Um, that. Yeah, I, I, what I wanted to know was which mods they liked, basically, because there were quite a few mods that I, I didn't remember because I didn't really explore the mod scene too deeply when I was a developer or when I was a publisher. It seemed to be a fringe thing, but it just became mainstream. And then after it became mainstream, there was this history to go back to. And the people that responded to us um, had some interesting stuff to say. So this is Fred Williams. And he's voting for something called Painkeep, which is a mod for Quake 1. And he says, a fun set of new weaponry, harpoon grapple gun thing, gravity well nuke thing, pork and beans health pack with unfortunate consequence thing. I wonder what that would be. And deployable bear traps. I mean, that's just nuts. So like a, a harpoon grapple gun, you know, which was never meant to be in the original game. It's just superb. And then he goes on to say some bespoke levels designed by people who knew what they were doing and made nice looking levels that were fun to run around PVPing your friends in and some less well uh, designed fan levels that were still fun. Um, And then he says at Big Red, uh, apparently a developer, we played this a lot, quite often on its smallest level designed for three, uh, maybe four players with eight of us running around it. Carnage. The delight of hearing snap, oh, ow, 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 from the far side of the office from a well-placed bear trap was a magnificent thing. (laughs) Our very own James Thompson says, I'd single out Portal Stories, uh, Mel, 
Uh, he mentions that this is a completely new Portal game with some fun puzzles. Portal, of course, was a definitive game for me, a really uh, influential game. Uh, the reach of portals way, way greater than its sales figures, especially in the, the development community. Uh, Aaron McLeod uh, says, it's rather hard to choose one, as one might consider things like Counter-Strike or Day of Defeat or custom maps in uh, World, uh, World of Warcraft 3, I think, um, like Dota. Uh, no, sorry, Warcraft 3. Uh, though I think I will pick a more recent entry done by... Uh, Carbo Animations, is that how it's pronounced? Not sure. They mainly make parody cartoons of Blizzard games, starting off with StarCraft 2 and, and venturing into cartoons for Heroes of the Storm, Overwatch, etc. But given the original StarCraft 2, uh, they funded a project to make a custom map of all the units in StarCraft 2 redone in their art style. Um, and he tells us he loves the show. Thank you, Aaron. We love you too. And on Twitter, we hear from Rob whose uh, handle is uh, Geigerpunk. I think it was probably Beavis and Butthead for Doom. There you go. You can turn Doom into Beavis and Butthead. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good compared to a lot of their total conversion wads around at the time. Uh, Simon, who I know quite well, a uh, very active, influential, and respected developer. Simon, um, Simon whose uh, Twitter handle is Barog, says... I wrote a fairly popular MP3 player mod uh, for World of Warcraft, which exploited a backdoor to communicate with Winamp. Blizzard shut it down. Sad face. <laughs> <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> so, Shahid, thank you for the uh, the little history lesson on, on modded games. I think I'm pleased that we went through both of these. I think there is some clear distinctions, right, between fan games and modded games that have come out over the last couple of weeks and I guess the way that I look at it now is like fan games tend to be like in a lot of essences like completely new creations that are in some way to honor a title um, and then but modded games seem to be more that like somebody taking a current game or an original game and changing it in some way what sometimes happens with those, as we see, is it ends up popping out into its own game eventually, but they're not really done necessarily through love of the property. It's just a, a mod gets that popular that it pops out and lives on its own. So there's, there's a, they are con they're kind of cut from the same cloth, but there is a, a fine distinction that you can make between the two of them. Definitely. I'd say um, you could summarize that. that I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but the way you've put it, you could say that a fan game is homage, and uh, a mod is a remix. Perfect. All right, today's show is brought to you by Squarespace. Use the offer code insertcoin at checkout and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. With Squarespace, you can create that next website for your truly great idea. You can make your next move with Squarespace because they give you everything you need. You can get a unique domain name. You can take advantage of beautiful award-winning templates. You can Take advantage of 24-7 customer support. If you have stuff you want to sell, you can fit an online store to your site. It's just super easy, drag and drop, click a couple of buttons, and you can start selling stuff. Maybe you want to create a blog or a portfolio or a site for your business or for your restaurant or for your local charity group or for your soccer team. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do, Squarespace gives you all of the tools that you need. It is an all-in-one platform that can let you take advantage 
to build your next website. You don't have to worry about installing stuff, patching anything, or upgrading anything. They have it all covered, and they back it all up with rock-solid hosting. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. You can sign up for a free trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. Then, when you do sign up, use the offer code INSERTCOIN, and you'll get 10% of your first purchase, and show your support for Remaster. Thank you so much to Squarespace for the continued support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So in between the time for this episode and the next episode, E3 will have happened and will be going on, right? Ah! (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It is coming quick. And I mean, also for for me and Federico, we have WWDC as well. Luckily, there was a year a few years ago where it was happening at the same time. And it was impossible to try and keep up with any news that you that anybody cared about. It was a nightmare. This was actually, I think, the E3 where the PlayStation 4 and the uh, Xbox One were announced. It was that right. E3. It was that E3 was happening whilst I was in at WWDC, so it was horrible to keep up with. But this time, at least, they're separated by a week. So I want to go through the uh, the three the three big cruise from in regards to, to platforms. So we're going to talk about Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony. Of course, you have all the game developers and the game makers, but I think it's very rare that there is like a presentation from EA where the game hasn't already been covered in somebody else's presentation, right? Like, they will, they will show maybe a bit more detail, but if EA have a huge game, it will have been on Sony's stage as well, right? Like, for example. So yeah, yeah. it's best, I think, to keep it to the three of them. So we have... Uh, wishes, expectations, types of stuff that we're looking for. And I wanted to ask you um, first, Jahid, we'll go to Microsoft first. What are you looking for from Microsoft's E3 presentation this year? What have you got your eye out for? Two things. The The first is I expect them to show that, in, in a very concrete way, that Scorpio is more powerful than PS4 Pro. That will be their challenge. Show something. That makes it very clear to not just the educated gamer, but the average gamer, that the Scorpio is going to be the console to have. Yeah, they need to show us something that's never been done before, right? Right. You just got to look at it, you know, even across a slightly dodgy internet connection and a stream and go, oh my God, Mm -hmm. I need to have this. Yeah. So I'm looking for that. I would love to see them pull something like that off. Um, And even if... It's not obvious on a stream for the people who are there to be able to see and report back and say, we witnessed something really special here and this thing just blows the competition out of the water. So that I would imagine that's what they're going to go for. And the other thing I'm looking out for is their take on uh, VR stroke AR stroke MR, whatever you want to call it. Uh, because, of course, they they announced something at gdc around uh, vr and ar and that could potentially be exciting it might be too soon so there might they might gloss over that but for them i think they want to really stake their claim for pole position in power again in a very demonstrable way yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna echo the two things that you're looking for here, but with a slightly different stance. I feel like if they do not show a really strong VR position, that will be a failure for me. I think that Scorpio needs should and probably will support VR in some way. 
and I want some real concrete details because it's it's the one thing that they mentioned in the original press release or like the the the, the announcement they spoke about VR and have never mentioned it again. So mm. my hope is that they have held it off for a big announcement and and I've I you know you can go back f- through this show I keep cons- I keep saying that my belief my feeling on this is that it will support the Oculus. That's where I think they're going to go. And that would be a huge deal, right? Because the pitch will be, I mean, to, for how much Oculus would like this or not, but I guess enough money can 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 uh, can change anything. It would be the idea that you can finally have an Oculus Rift in your living room. You know, like that's kind of going to be, I think, the pitch that, that, that they would go for if they got really powerful mm. VR. So that's what mm. I want to see. I mean, as well as... Xbox have really taken a beating in this console war, and I think part of the reason is they the Xbox One has not had, I think, as strong a list of exclusives and first-party games as the PlayStation have. I think that, you know, people will always argue, but, like, my opinion on this is the reason that Sony have absolutely destroyed them in sales is because Sony's game lineup has been stronger you know, they get all of the games that Microsoft will get to, for the most part, but then their first party stuff has been killer, right? Like Uncharted has just been incredible, right? Like yeah, all of these yeah. games that have just been really, have been really knocking it out of the park. Um, and then with the PSVR as well. So I think that my, I would really, really like to see Microsoft say, we've got this thing coming later next year, whenever it's going to be, Scorpio. But until then, here are these 15 games that we have that you will be dying to play. Right? That's what I'm looking for from Microsoft because I would like to see them have a bit more of a, a competitive advantage again because it's good for everybody. Yeah, I agree with that. What about Nintendo? What do you want to see from Nintendo? Of course, Nintendo will be doing a, a, a big... Um, video presentation of their own right not not an on-stage presentation they'll be doing a, a, an extended direct what are you looking for from nintendo uh one thing that would be reasonably easy for them to do and the other thing might be hard but the easy thing for me would be just give me metroid okay uh if they can do that fantastically if they just announce it and tease it wonderful i'm going to be a happy man you are basically how every metroid fan is like you just want a sign of life. Yeah. Right? Like, that's all it is. They don't, they don't need to say, like, oh, Metroid's coming out tomorrow. You just want to know that Metroid is still happening. I don't even remember the last time I played a Metroid game. It might have been on the GameCube. And it wasn't, uh, wasn't the greatest Metroid. I much preferred it on SNES. Yeah, just, just give me something that's meaningful for, for the Switch. And the other thing I really want from them is to show the world that they still got it with Mario. I mean, despite my teasing, yeah, you know, when when they completely reinvented, sorry, they didn't reinvent, but yeah, they reinvented Mario on the Nintendo 64. And it was probably the most profound breakthrough in 3D game design that the world has ever seen. They set the rules for 3D uh, back then for decent camera systems for navigation all of that stuff they they defined it now they don't have that kind of leap to make here but they do have something different they have a new new console that has shown that it can be used in a number of ways seamlessly so if they can do something with switch that lends itself to that kind of play 
that works one way when it's docked and one way when it's not. That would be really exciting because I expect it to be a really great game. They're not going to mess about with Mario. But I would like them to do something that blows people away. And if they can do that, I'm going to be very, very happy. I do agree with you about Mario. Like, you know, there are people like me that are always going to buy and play that game, but I want to know why Mario Odyssey is great. Like, I want them to show me, because all they've done is just show these, like, very, like, tidbits of the game, right? I want to see why this is going to be a great game. I want to see why this was not a launch title game, right? Like, show me why Mario Odyssey is going to be awesome. Like, because that's going to be, I think, the game they probably give the most attention to at E3 because it is their biggest property that they haven't yet released on, right? Like Zelda's yeah. out, right? We know a bunch yeah. of Splatoon stuff. Mario Kart's out, right? They're gonna, I think they're going to spend a lot of time about Mario Odyssey. This is their big game that they're expecting is going to sell them even more systems at Christmas. So I want to see some information about that. Um, I really want to see Pokemon <laughs> for the Switch, right? I want to see it. I want to know what they're doing. They've got to be doing something, and now is the time to tell me. Um, my my big thing for this is I want to see I want to see Nintendo have some excellent games for the Switch. You can show me stuff that's eighteen months away, but like I want to I want them to show me EA, right? I want to see uh, third party. Yeah, I want to see big third party commitment in showing me a trailer. No one on a slide. Like I want to see if the millions of consoles that they have been selling is actually translating to these companies bringing their titles, not just saying they're going to, right? There's lots of quotes from lots of execs saying that they're interested in the Switch. I want to see a big title coming to the Switch. Um, it, it can even be something like how um, Oblivion is coming, right? It doesn't need to be a new game, Right, you don't need to give me the current Call of Duty. I just want to see like a real serious developer bringing a serious game to the platform, a game that could be six months old. It doesn't bother me so much. I just want to see that commitment, you know, because it's a, mm. it's a start. I want to see a start. I mean, of course, I would love Rockstar to come out and say Red Dead Redemption is going to be on it. I mean, it's not going to yeah. be, but that would be like ideal, you know, scenario. But that's not going to happen. But show me something else, right? Like I would, I would really love to see that. Like you know, Grand Theft Auto. Because a game like Grand Theft Auto on the Switch would say so much about what Nintendo is trying to do because that is not a Nintendo game. But I believe they're starting to show some changes, right? Like with the amount of effort and publicity they put into the Binding of Isaac for the Switch, which mm. is a it's a game that talks about pretty complicated stuff, right? Like it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty controversial. Yeah, it's very controversial. It's not your traditional Switch game. Yeah, they they would never have allowed that through their approval process in the old days. So I'm hoping that that is a sign of a change in them. So like you know, we start to see some more grown up titles coming to the Switch, as well as everything else that Nintendo does. Like I just want game after game after game. I want to see like tons more indies. I want to get dates for a bunch of stuff. Like give me Stardew Valley. Give me it. Give me it. Give me it. Um, I want to see Animal Crossing. I really want them to just knock it out of the park because that's where my heart is right now. Um, and they, they've done so well so far. Um, I really want to see that continue. So Nintendo is who I have the majority of my focus into. Surprise, surprise, going into E3. like They're the ones that I really want. I, I'm, I'm on your side here. And this time around, I'm going to be paying very close attention to them. 
I absolutely love my Switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the only device I use on a consistent basis to play video games these days. Me too. Which, which surprises the hell out of me. But yeah, I would love to see uh, a wider dynamic range from from Nintendo. I hope that what you're saying is true and that they are shifting in that regard. I mean, the, the two games you mentioned, uh, Stardew Valley and what was the other one? Animal Crossing, yeah. And they're perfect because of the use case. You want to play them for ages and then you want to take them away with you. These games that demand hour after hour after hour of your undivided attention. Those are the kind of things that are going to work perfectly on there. You know, obviously one is a third-party game and one is not, but it doesn't matter. You know, the, the content is perfect for it. And there are a lot of games like that that you could bring out, which are not necessarily new, but that would suit it. Um, Terraria is a good example, actually, you know, uh, of an older game that would be really, really good on Switch just because of the way people use Switch. So what about Sony? What are you looking for? It's hard. You know, when you're out in front, what do you do? Do you play it safe? I mean, not to get too political, but I find it interesting drawing the analogy with the the UK election in that the Conservatives had an extremely strong lead in the polls, right? What do you do? <laughs> it's very hard to run a campaign when you're that far ahead. It's like a football team. When you're 2-0 up at half time, what do you do? Do you sit back? Or do you try and close the game down in another way? Or do you try and score more goals? What do you do? Very hard to be in the lead. It sounds absurd, doesn't it? But it's not total domination. It is just a lead. It's a good, healthy lead. And you have that in other situations. So it might not be the best time for them to risk what they've got so far. So they might be playing like a football team that has got a 2-0 lead at halftime. And you know what? They want to sit back, they want to defend, they want to soak up the pressure and and ride it out for this generation. On the other hand, they have been knocking it out the park with their games. And I don't see why it would make any sense for them to take their foot off the gas in that respect. The thing that's worked really well for them for the last couple of years in their press events is just focusing on games. You know, trailer after trailer after trailer, and every single one is just immense. And what that does is it shows the power differential between the bog-standard PS4 and the bog-standard Xbox One. That's complicated in this generation because now they have the PS4 Pro. They need to sell that. How how are they going to do that? How are they going to sell the PS4 Pro? What are you going to see? Are they going to do side-by-side comparisons? People don't care about that. They don't care if they got a bit more of this or a bit more of that. Um, they just want to see really, really cool games. I guess the advantage of PS4 Pro for them is going to be that any game they do on that is always going to be running at a decent frame rate, I would imagine. Um, can be higher resolution. That probably won't always be. I would love to see um, a big timed exclusive but i suspect those days have gone because what you want is the biggest partners and the biggest partners don't like to fracture their install base that way they'll give you something like uh, a beta slightly ahead of the other partner map packs yeah just meaningless stuff you know and that is worth its weight in gold but it's not really meaningful for the player they don't really care about that so i suspect we'll see maybe some more of that as well I think there might well be some 
uh, announcements on. I'm trying to say stuff without breaking confidentiality and 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 sources and so on. But I I would imagine they're going to show that PSVR has been uh, very successful from a hardware perspective. This is what I want the most. I want more PSVR games. That's this is my big 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 thing for Sony more than anything else. Yeah, and it, the the problem there is. Um, the, I mean, they have publicly announced figures for PSVR of uh, more than a million. And I suspect they've done more than that, and I suspect they are supply-constrained. But they've done way, way, way north of 50 million PS4s. So if you're a developer or a publisher, it makes much more sense, even though there's far more competition on PS4, to make a PS4 game. you just got 50 times the install base, right? If you make a PSVR game, okay, you are a much, much larger fish in a much, much smaller pond. You'll therefore uh, get more strategic visibility and you will just get more install base visibility as, as a ratio. So it makes sense for some people to make a foray into PSVR games. I just think that at the moment it's going to be PlayStation that takes the lead there. I have heard mutterings that developers making games for other high-end vr platforms are moving over more and more to psvr simply because psvr has achieved such hardware dominance the all the things that we were saying that we think this is the right platform for consumer vr seems to have come about it does seem to have run ahead so wish list what i'd really like to see is a replacement for the move controllers to help them announce oh, yes. some kind of hand tracking stuff mm-hmm. and maybe some other tracking stuff um that would be cool yeah i i i think the biggest thing that they could do would be to have better better controllers right and as you say maybe it comes with tracking too but like the headset is totally fine for me it's very comfortable high enough resolution does the job the problem is when like the the things start to get a bit wonky, right? Like, uh, I would like to to see a lot better support for the the tracking, as you say, and also just better controllers, more comfortable controllers. Something which is cl- you know clearly the t- Rift Touch controllers are onto a winner because HTC is making controllers that also look just like it. Plus, I've used them and they're freaking incredible, right? Yeah, I want to see Sony do that because look. Sony no hardware, <laughs> right? Yep. I I would really, yep. really, really like to see them give that a better a better go. To be honest, that that would be for me the the real big winner and a real big commitment. Yeah, I mean, ergonomically, they're going to just get that right, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the headset you're absolutely spot on. For me, it's by far the most comfortable headset. It's just beautiful the the way the whole thing sits together, the way it easily accommodates glasses, you know, with with barely an adjustment, the way it doesn't fog up as much as the other uh, headsets. I mean, obviously there are pluses and minuses, but you're right; they're they're totally a hardware company. They would be able to get something like this right. I don't think they will release it because I don't think the install base, even though it's the best of the top end VR platforms, is high enough to justify release. But they should certainly announce it and they should talk about exactly what kind of tech it's using and what it's going to give you. I would like to have higher resolution rumble. Um, I, I guess you've got something like that on Rift, uh, but it's it's more subtle and more interesting still on the Switch. 
I would like them to take that a lot further so that you can really feel what's going on. You get a sense of tactility that perhaps you can't get anywhere else. Uh, so that would be really good. Um, maybe other trackers, ankle bands, you know, something that just makes you feel a bit more immersed. I don't know. I don't know what, but they've they've got to show that after the successful launch of PSVR, that this is still a priority for them and they don't, that they're not walking away in any way. I don't think they'll do that simply because it, it's been good for them. It's been good technologically and they, they have been seen as a leader, even though uh, the, the actual install base is not absolutely huge compared to, say, a PS4 console. But in terms of the launch of an extremely uh, cutting-edge piece of technology, I think they're very respectable install bases and above some people's estimations. And it's quite telling that they're supply-constrained on those. Yeah, I, I'm excited for E3 this year because whilst we're not expecting consoles, this is like the next best thing, right? Like we're not expecting like you know something on the the scale of like a PS4, but this is more exciting than what maybe it should be at this point in the life cycle. You know, we have the Switch is just new, so there could be a bunch of interesting stuff there. We have like another revision of the Xbox, right? Because we're going to these yearly revisions, and who knows what Sony's going to have in the way of hardware? It could be new PSVR hardware. Who knows? But hardware is inherently more exciting than software for these big, these big stage things, in my opinion. Like the software backs up the hardware, and when we get like these great hardware. E3s, they're more exciting because the software is always going to be big and good, right? There's always, every year there is new big and good software. There isn't always new big and good hardware. So that's what I'm excited for for E3 this year. Yeah, that's that's spot on. I mean, the hardware is a dream. And whenever people see software trailers and announcements, it makes the people who bought the original hardware feel good about their decision. Yes. It's a comfort factor thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So buckle up, everybody. It's going to be a crazy couple of weeks. <laughs>